Jesus, they are most welcome. We love having kids in the service with us. We have been working through our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Confession of Faith, for uh, some time now. And this morning, uh, we are continuing to look at chapter 8 of our Confession of Faith, um, which, again, takes into account um, the totality of God's Word, the Old and the New Testaments, um, and what it says about particular doctrines. And we are looking at uh, what the Scriptures say about Christ the mediator. And so I'm looking at paragraph four of chapter eight. It says this, the office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us. Enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven. And there sitteth at the right hand of his father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So that is paragraph four of chapter eight of our confession of faith. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark. We are beginning chapter five uh, together this morning, and we are going to look at the first uh, 20 verses, actually, of Mark chapter five. And for the next couple of weeks, I've entitled the sermon, The Great Things the Lord Has Done, which picks up on a phrase that we'll see in our text today. And uh, if you're looking, just as always when I can, I want to note just parallel passages that you can go and look at that I'm, you know, I'm going to refer to one of them this morning, but I'm not going to read them all in their entirety. But Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34 um, documents what we're going to see here, as well as Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. And so you can just note that. But allow me to read these first 20 verses. I'm going to make a few comments as I read just for clarity's sake. And then after I read, I'll pray for us. The word of the Lord says this, then they, okay, speaking of Jesus and the disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, right? So this is after what we looked at last week with the storm and the wind and the waves. They come to the country of the Gadarenes. And and just a a quick geographical note, because I don't want us to uh, get sidetracked. Some of your translations say um, the Gerasenes, you may notice. And the name of the location of this miracle, it's it's different in different manuscripts with, with a, a, a variation in names, uh, seemingly. Some are related to the cities, and some of the names are related to the overall country, like what I just read in our text here in Mark. But there are scholars and archaeologists that debate about the exact location that this miracle took place just because it's hard to determine how far the country extended into this um, particular ancient area. But church tradition since around the third century identified the location as Jersa, 
which was within the district of Decapolis, which is, I'll read that, it's in our text this morning, which is a collection of 10 uh, cities. It literally means 10 cities. But interestingly enough, archaeological evidence, recent, and by recent I mean 1970, agrees with third century conclusions. The, the evidence is the remains of an ancient town near the, the Sea of Galilee with tombs that were nearby within these 10 cities, the Decapolis. So I say that to say, despite our, our difficulty with understanding these ancient cities and the textual variances that we may see as we read it in our translations or read it in the other gospel accounts, uh, church tradition, consensus, and archaeological support the actual location of this Jersa, if you will. But let's look on just verse 2. So that's a long comment um, for you. And that was riveting stuff as well. But the, um, starting with verse 2 here, and when he had come out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs, okay, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. So you see the significance of the archaeological evidence, right? And nobody could bind him, not even with chains, because he had been bound with shackles and with chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And, and perhaps that worshipped him, it should be better translated as fell down before him. Okay, and I'll, I'll explain why in just a moment. But fell down before him. Verse 7. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said, Jesus said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what's your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. Okay, there were about 2,000, our text said, says. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Verse 15, then they came to Jesus and saw the one, and pay attention to this phrasing, saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. You know, the, the reason it's phrased that way, the, saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, is because Ma Matthew, if you were to read his account, records there being two men, while Mark and Luke record only the prominent man, the legion, right? So, so where there's two man, men, there's at least one man, right? That's how math works. And Mark and Luke, you know, they record for us the more prominent ones. So from our text, what we see is that the townspeople, they came and they saw the man possessed by legion after hearing about the miracle, okay? So again, read verse 15 again with that in mind, right? They came to Jesus they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they 
were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart, plead with Jesus to depart from the region. Verse 18, and when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and he began to proclaim in Decapolis all the 10 cities. They are all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it has been inspired the Holy Spirit written by human authors, and not just inspired, but it's been preserved for us, God, that we can trust it, that we can trust that as we read it, that we are hearing from you, and we ask that your Spirit would help us to understand this with eyes of faith, God, that you would help us to savor Christ more, that you would help us to be changed as a result of having spent time in your word this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this account here of a, a demonic possession, and it's not the first encounter that we see Jesus have in the gospel of Mark with, with a demon, but it is more severe, right? And, and this is a more detailed account. Mark actually uh, gives us the most deep detail if you were to compare this account with both Matthew and with Luke. And if you were to follow the, the flow of the New Testament, you would see that demon possession was seemingly more common during the first advent of Christ, right? During the, the time when the Messiah came to seek and save the lost. And I would suggest that that was a, an intentional strategy used by Satan. In, in fact, the, the largely absent mention of demonic possession and of exorcisms in the epistles, right, after some years had passed, after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, that's interesting to me that, that we see it more heavily concentrated during the first advent of Christ here. But in our text, there's a man who lives among the tombs, a man that would have been, according to Levitical law, he would have been deemed as unclean. And just to give you a just quick insight into that, the, the declaration of being unclean, which from what we read here is well-deserved, right? The, the man is, he's a maniac in every sense of, of the definition, but to be unclean is to be cut off from the community, He's, he's an outcast. He's shunned. And I'm not sure if this man was a Jew or if he was a Gentile. Decapolis, the 10 cities, it was largely a collection of Gentile cities. But this man, nonetheless, he, he lived isolated. He had to live isolated because he lived as if he were a beast. He was violent. He was erratic. He was unpredictable. Now, Note that his strength is beyond that of a man, okay? He, he was bound with shackles. He was bound with chains. And according to our text, he could, he could take them apart. It seems without effort, he could take them apart. The text also says that the people tried to, quote, tame him, which is a word used in relation to wild animals, 
right? Fitting for this man's behavior. Yet, unlike a wild animal, this man couldn't be tamed. He couldn't be tamed. To, to add to the immense difficulty of, of the isolation, Mark also records for us that this man would cry night and day in the mountains and in the tombs. And in his crying, he would cut himself with stones. Now, this act of, of crying loudly and of cutting oneself with stones, it could have been a form of demonic worship. We, we see the act of crying and cutting with Baal's priest when they face Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. And it could be something like that, but it also could be that these demons, or it could be a combination of the two, but these demons were tempting this man to destroy himself, to commit suicide. Right? And regardless of what we see here is, is a marring, what, you know, regardless of the motive, what we see is a marring of the Imago Dei, right? the, the image of God in man. And we see the marring in both the way in which he behaves and we see the marring in the, self, the self-harm and perhaps even the suicidal um, ideations that he, that he may be wrestling with. Now, this demon-possessed man, or, or rather these demons they recognized Jesus from a distance, okay? And they ran to him. And the translation I read to you says, quote, worshiped him. Now, the English translation, it doesn't quite capture what's happening. Although Mark, uh, that word that Mark uses, it's often translated as worship. But in this context, it's better to be understood that he fell down before Jesus, okay? This uh, this demon-possessed man, he fell down before Jesus, and the man comes, the demons speak, and we see that the very presence of Jesus is torment to, the, to that which is evil. His very presence is torment to that which is evil. And the man possessed by the demons, he, he falls down before Jesus, and he's in this begging type of posture. And the question the demons ask is, quote, what have I to do with you. What have I to do with you? In other words, we have nothing in common. We have nothing in common. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness have nothing in common. And this Jesus, right, who is himself light, he disrupts, he disturbs the darkness by his very presence, right? And we see with Christ, both his commanding of the demonic spirit, uh, spirits to leave and his asking of the name here as uh, before this begging um, man possessed by all these different demons. But we see when Jesus asks for the name, we see that name legion that's given, which is usually used uh, as a, a, a Roman military uh, term. It described a Roman military unit of around 54 hundred soldiers. Uh, and I think in using that, what, what Mark, what the Holy Spirit of God is intending for us to grasp is that, again, this isn't just one demon that Jesus is speaking to, but, but it's many demons, right? So this, this man, he's, he's in a hopeless situation, right? This is a very desperate, dark situation. In fact, there are those who have called this entire chapter, chapter 5, of the Gospel of Mark, the St. Jude chapter, 
right? St. Jude in Roman Catholicism is considered to be the patron saint of hopeless causes, right? That's why there's the hospital that, that is named after uh, St. Jude. And we see hopeless causes abounding in this chapter, beginning with this demon-possessed man, this man that is possessed by legion, right? We see as well in chapter 5, as, as we will work through it over the next couple of weeks, we see the healing of the woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, right? And we also see the, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter who, who died, right? Now, who is there that can bring healing and bring hope to such hopeless causes, right? Who is it that could enter into the lives of people that are so desperate, that are suffering so much and bring, bring hope, real hope? Right? Only God incarnate, right? Only Jesus, the Messiah. So we see the legion of demons they're, they're, they're prostrate before Jesus, right? They've tormented this poor man for who knows how long, right? And they're begging Jesus not to send them out of the country, right? An, an unusual request. Uh, and and why, why is this the case? I, I think the answer to that could, is possibly found in Matthew's gospel where he records a legion as saying, not only what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God, have you come here to torment us? But they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. And so that phrase, quote, before the time, it seems to have in view not so much just the passing of time, but to the, the sovereign appointed time in which Christ would deal the decisive blow to the kingdom of darkness. We, we see that type of idea as it relates to a sovereign appointed time picked up on by Paul in Galatians. And I'm just, we'll read that to you quickly. Galatians chapter four, starting with verse four here, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, right? Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption sons. So the appointed time, it could refer to the redemption secured by Jesus through his death on the cross and his resurrection and his first advent, or it could refer to the return of Christ in his second advent when death is finally destroyed through him resurrecting us from the dead and his shutting the gates of hell permanently, right? Maybe both are in view, but I, I think that there's something to that in his engagement here with Legion and Legion saying, your time, are you coming to us before the time? Are you sending us away? Is hell about to be shut up, right? And certainly we see that the beginnings of that are happening in the first advent of Christ, but that won't be definitively done away with until Christ returns, right? But the de demons, they, they beg Jesus, instead of sending them away out of the country, perhaps shutting them in hell forever, they beg him to be sent into a herd of pigs, right? About, about 2,000 of them. And as Jesus commands the demons to leave the man, he gives them permission to possess the pigs. And what these demons do with the pigs was the goal of what they were trying to do to the man, 
right, created in God's image. They meant him harm. They sought to utterly destroy him and destroy the Imago Dei in him, right? Now, the caretakers of the pigs, they fled because they, they witnessed this incredible event, perhaps this very terrifying event, right? And, and they told people in the cities, they told people throughout the country, and upon hearing about this event, the people of the cities, the, this Decapolis, they came to see, they wanted to see it with their own eyes, right? No doubt this man that was possessed by the legion would have been well known, right? So, so people came, and they saw Jesus, and with Jesus, this particular man who was possessed by legion, and this man was, quote, sitting clothed in his right mind, right? Right mind meaning reasonable or sensible or having understanding, right? No longer a maniac, right? This hopeless cause cured, right? Everything the people witnessed at that moment Right? They were so counter to what they knew him to be. Right? What they were seeing before their very eyes, the sanity of this man, the healing of this man, was the complete opposite of what they knew to be true about this man. And what's, what's the response of the people? What's the response of the people? Is it worship and admiration of Jesus? Right? Is there a mass conversion and light of the power of God? Is there humility? No, no. This multitude of people, they beg Jesus to leave. They beg him to leave. They want him to be as far away from them as possible, right? They're terrified of Jesus. They're terrified of the one powerful enough to subdue perhaps the scariest man that they knew. And this historical account ends with Christ departing, right? Yet, giving a commission to this man that, that he delivered, one that we'll talk more about in just a moment. Now, what are some things that, that we should note in this passage? And, and if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Kids, if you're following along, you can write this down. The first is this. Christ has power over chaos. Christ has power over chaos. All right, we saw that last week with the winds and with the waves, and we see it now with this, again, this seemingly hopeless case of demonic possession. Again, think about, think about how desperate this particular situation is, right? This is a man that we could put into a category of being irredeemable, couldn't we? We could easily put him into that category. He was a lost cause, right? He couldn't be reasoned with. He couldn't... S- see sense or logic, right? And, and he couldn't be restrained long enough to even try to talk sense into him. But could this historical account here, could it be preserved by the Holy Spirit of God to comfort those of us who may begin to despair and think that either we are beyond redemption or that somebody that we know and perhaps love is beyond redemption, Right? How far gone was this man that Jesus brought salvation to? How far gone was he? And if Christ brought this man out of his miserable state, is there any sinner that's too far gone? Is there any sinner that's too far gone? Ephraim, the, the Syrian who lived in the, the 300s, he, he said this about this passage. 
He said, even if a a whole army of demons takes up residence in a single body, the Redeemer can transform human misery into soundness. And why is that? Why is that? We know the answer to the question, certainly. But it's because Jesus is truly God. He's truly God. But Athanasius, in his great work on the incarnation of the Word, he says this, Obviously, he, speaking of Christ, would not be expelling evil spirits and pillaging idols if he were impotent. For the evil spirits would not obey one who was impotent. If, on the other hand, the very naming of him drives them forth, he clearly is not powerless. The spirits especially see through what is unseen by human eyes. They could tell if Christ was vulnerable and refuse him any obedience at all. As it is, what human disbelief doubts, the evil spirits see quite clearly that he's God. For that reason, they flee from him. For that reason, they fall at his feet, still crying out even as though they cried out when he was in the body, quote, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, ah, what have I in common with you, Son of God? I implore you, do not torment me. God, in Christ Jesus, He brings order to chaos. He speaks with authority in demons. Even this most hopeless of situation, this possession by a myriad of demons, can't help but obey. They must obey obey. We see another example of this, and and what may seem more benign than just Jesus exercising these demons and bringing salvation to this man, right? This is a very, um, this would make for a great blockbuster movie, wouldn't it? Um, But we see Jesus and his power and his authority and him being truly God, even in something more benign as it relates to a rich man entering the kingdom of God, right? Because the rich man often loves and is ruled by his possessions and the preservation of his possessions. And and so, you know, Jesus has in the gospels this discourse with the disciples where he says it's, you know, easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man, right, to um, enter into the kingdom of God. And, And the disciples, upon hearing that teaching, Right? They say, who then can be saved? Who could possibly be saved? Right? And you can almost sense the desperation as the disciples ask that question. And Jesus responds with men, right? and this is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, with men, this is impossible. Right? So they're right to think of it that way. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. Right? So we've got this hopeless case of the legion of demons in this man who's perhaps been abandoned because of how hopeless of a situation it is. And we see Jesus bring salvation. And we see in, in a, a, a much more, what would maybe we would think a, a mundane encounter with the disciples, Jesus speaking of salvation that he can bring to people that even love their possessions because he will compel them to repent of that love and to love him, right? With God, all things are possible, right? What's difficult 
what's even impossible for man, what we look at and despair and think, again, there's no hope. That's not impossible with God. It's not even an obstacle for the Lord. And again, what, what, I, don't, what, what I don't want us to walk away with this morning is, is to look at this and think that this, some, this is some sort of health and wealth prosperity that we're looking at here. Right? That's not what's in view in our text at all. What we need to see is that our God, who, who's uncompromisingly holy, holy, holy in His kindness, in His compassion, in His grace, in His mercy, He does the impossible. He brings order to chaos through the person and work of Christ by bringing salvation to sinners who cannot save themselves. Right? Even those sinners who seem like they're beyond the reach of redemption. Right? Even those sinners that are possessed by legion of demons. Secondly, Jesus restores the image of God in us. Jesus restores the image of God in us. As I've studied this passage, I've actually been struck by those who I've read that would critique Jesus. And, you know, how arrogant is that? But that would critique Jesus for allowing the demons to enter into the herd of pigs, right? It just shows me just how far the culture of of death runs. Instead of celebrating the deliverance of a man created in the image, there's this critique for allowing the demons to go into the herd of pigs that aren't created in the image of God, right? It's the equivalent of PETA promoting abortion. But, but what, can we, what can be lost on us, I think, and what we should see in our text this morning, right, is this dim picture of what the Lord is doing in us as we grow and mature in the faith and, and what will happen when everything bad is definitively done away with in the return of Jesus. We have this man here who is disfigured. He's disfigured both morally and he's disfigured physically. Again, the, the, the demons were seeking to do to him what they did to the pigs, okay? But, but Christ... He comes into the picture, and he restores the humanity of this man. He restores the humanity of this man who behaved and even looked as if he were a wild beast. And, and while our behavior, right, and even our looks may not match the erratic behavior and, and the looks of this particular man, what we need to see is that even the smallest of sin— mars the image of God in us. Even the smallest of sin mars the image of God in us. It deforms us, spiritually speaking. This is one of the great tragedies of the fall of man, right? Adam and Eve were created in God's image, right? God's unique creation, man and woman who enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Lord. They fell from this state through their disobedience, right? Sin Sin isn't this created thing, right? That's why God isn't the author of evil. God didn't create sin. God didn't create evil. Sin and evil is a distortion. It's a marring of that which God created and called good. And so the image of God in man has been deformed. It's been disfigured by sin and evil, Right? And certainly we get this propped up to us in this particular case. 
Yet God in Christ, He's restoring the Imago Dei in us. He prophesied that He would do this very thing. We see in Isaiah, we see, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, crimson, they shall be as wool. And we look forward, not just you know, knowing intellectually, perhaps, of what we're moving toward, but man, experientially, that day when we're finally conformed into the image of Jesus, right? When sin and when evil, right? Those sins that still pester us and bother us because we're still wrestling with, with our own sin nature, that, that will finally be done away with. And we'll have a glorified, resurrected body like that of our glorified, resurrected Savior. We get glimpses of that in, throughout various passages of Scripture, but that's what we're moving toward, right? And so, in this demonic possession, again, this wildly hopeless case, case study, perhaps, that we have preserved for us in Scripture, we we get a glimmer of that, God restoring humanity, bringing salvation to this man, marred by sin and marred by suffering, which describes every one of us in here, right? We're not demon-possessed, but we wrestle with sin and suffering, both results of living in a fallen world, right? And that mars the Imago Dei. That will definitively be done away with when Christ returns. And so we get a glimmer of that here. We get a snapshot of that here. And that brings me immense comfort and immense hope. And the third, final thing we can see here, those who know Jesus desire to be with Jesus. Those who do not know him are offended by him. And so those who know Jesus desire to be with Jesus. Those who do not know him are offended by him. Look back at the verses of how the the people throughout the cities, how they responded to this healing versus how the once demon-possessed man responded. Start in verse 16 here. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from the region. They're pleading with Jesus to depart. Not even with the demon-possessed man they were scared of, right? He, was, he stayed in the city, but they asked Christ to leave. They began to plead with him to depart from the region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed, he begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. And he departed, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Right? These, these people, perhaps, that asked him to leave, maybe they became persuaded at some point. Now, Jesus, he, he mostly ministered to Jews in his first advent, but here in Mark 5, right, we see him ministering amongst the Gentiles are a largely Gentile area, right? And, and these people, they, they came out to see exactly what had happened, right? And, and, and again, you would have thought that they would have celebrated, right? They would have celebrated. You thought there would have been some great, I would expect this to end with a party, right? 
salvation even. Maybe you know, they would have witnessed this event and they would have said, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Here's the evidence. But they didn't celebrate, right? They, they begged Jesus to leave, almost mirroring the begging of legion, ironically enough. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus, right? They had nothing in common with Jesus. How, how sad it is to be so close to Jesus, yet not desire him, to not want him, right? To hear the testimonies of lives changed and to even see that change with your own eyes, yet receive it with a coolness. Yet, church buildings are full of these types of people every Sunday, aren't they? Right? Christ is spiritually close, There are evidences of lives that are changed by the gospel of God, yet there's this rejection of Jesus. Hell will be full, consist of these types of people, people that were near the presence of Jesus, yet did not want Jesus, did not desire Jesus, preferred the distance. And this this is sad. Yet in contrast to the crowd, you see this man, this and I've used this expression a lot this morning, but this hopeless cause, this man that was demon-possessed, and the text says, you know, nothing, nothing of this, but I'm sure that he still had the wounds from where he was cutting himself with stones. Right? Those scars would probably remain for the rest of his life. And although Jesus clothed the man, perhaps he still stunk from living amongst the tombs and amongst the pigs. But this man, he experienced the presence of Jesus. At the beginning of our story, this historical account here, he asked Jesus to leave him alone like the crowd does here at the end. The presence of Jesus was a torment. But now we see the man still begging. He was begging at the beginning and he's he's begging at the end here. Yet the tune has changed. He's begging to be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He doesn't want to be separated. He doesn't want Christ to leave. And get this, the, the man's already healed. He's already healed, right? His, di- his, his desire to be with Jesus isn't about healing. He didn't even want to be healed initially, did he? His desire to be with Jesus is just that. He wants to be with his Savior. He wants to be with a Savior. And we see Christ giving a commission, not unlike our commission, right? Quote, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And that man, probably the first missionary really to the Gentiles, right? He He does that very thing. He proclaims the compassion of Christ to the Decapolis, to the the ten cities. And it seems like there was some sort of reception there, right? We see in our text that some marveled. They marveled. So may we long as a church body to be in the presence of Jesus. And may we grow in our desire to, to testify about the great things the Lord has done for us, right? If I brought each of you up here who are walking with Christ, we could hear story after story 
of God's faithfulness to you in Jesus Christ. May we never get past that. May we never get over that as God's church. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to spend some time in it this morning, God. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that Christ has power. He has authority over chaos, God, that there's no sinner too far gone. That there's no person beyond redemption. We thank you for that. God, we thank you that you are restoring the Imago Dei in us that has been marred by sin and suffering. And Lord, I pray that we would increasingly, as your church, desire the presence of Christ. And we love you. We thank you and give you all praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.